From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. Today is Wednesday, May 16th. I'm Lisa Mullins in Boston. A new report on the long-term effects of traumatic brain injury. The study examined the brains of a group of war vets who recently passed away. After uh, they came back, they all had trouble with headaches, irritability, a short fuse. Many had sleeping problems. Three were diagnosed with PTSD. And later, why it might be okay for Greece to ditch the euro. I would predict that if Greece does leave the euro, the, the next two years will be extremely difficult, but equally the rebound will be faster. PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save-A-Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. Syrian President Bashar al-Assad is accusing other nations and foreign mercenaries of sowing chaos in his country. Assad made the remarks in an interview with Russian television. The Syrian president also said his regime is battling terrorists, not ordinary Syrians calling for more democracy. But opposition activists say the Assad regime is, in fact, attacking civilians. As the violence continues in Syria, one ongoing challenge for the opposition is the treatment of those wounded in the fighting. Some of the most intense clashes have taken place in Douma. That's a town just outside of Damascus. There was Laura Lynch was recently there and saw firsthand what doctors and nurses there are facing. Douma, at first glance, looks like a bustling town on a busy Saturday. The shops are open for business and children are playing in the street. But in this town of half a million people, this is only a veneer. Coming around the corner, six truckloads of government soldiers wheel into view. And the people melt back into their homes and shops, into the shadows. On the outskirts of Douma, members of the Free Syrian Army have gathered on the grounds of what used to be a graceful villa before it was hit by mortars. The rebel soldiers communicate on walkie-talkies as they pace over shattered glass, clutching rifles in one hand, cigarettes in the other. A junior recruit, 21 years old, wears battle fatigues and an ammunition belt around his waist. He says he defected because he couldn't bear the way the army was treating its own people. When I was on duty at army checkpoints, any civilian approaching a car would be dragged out of his car and put in prison for days. For him, the arrival of the UN monitors has provided no relief. Because they'll enter a home and talk to someone. Then they'll go to the government security agents and tell them what we said. So they're spies as far as you're concerned? Yes. He and the others move around Douma in packs, in rattling cars with wobbly wheels and missing fenders. He says there's no turning back. Peaceful demonstrations are well and good, but we were forced into becoming violent. When the military kills my brother or my cousin, I will go out and defend him. And he shows me what the battles have cost him. The top of one of his fingers is gone. Then he pulls up his shirt, revealing a vivid red scar. It's from surgery after he was shot in the stomach. 
He may very well have been treated, at least initially, by the woman standing before me now, pulling medical supplies out of a backpack. All of these have been smuggled in past army checkpoints. She barely qualifies as a nurse, having only finished the most basic training. But she now has battlefield experience and lists off the tools of her trade. Sterilized bandages, antibiotics, syringes, lotions for treating burns. We even hide them inside the folds of our clothes. I was stopped at the beginning of the revolution and apprehended for three hours because of these. She carries them to makeshift clinics inside people's homes, or she goes straight to the homes of the wounded. If we're able to treat them, we do treat them. If we can't, we do our best to get them to the hospital. It is suffering in every sense of the word, a struggle to transport patients, a struggle to work in a makeshift clinic that can be raided at any given moment. At any time, they could capture the wounded. It's not just soldiers. Protesters and other opposition supporters have also been hurt at demonstrations. Even though the army has control of most of Duma now, there are still skirmishes and violence every week, mainly after Friday prayers. A doctor welcomes me into his examining room. He has no regular patients now, he says, because no one can afford to come. Instead, he says he has a new kind of practice courtesy of the uprising. The injuries we are seeing are mixed. Bullet wounds to the stomach, the head, the limbs. We have had to carry out amputations several times. The worst cases are those who become paralyzed due to bullet wounds. He does most of his work at the hospital, even when the government security forces enter the wards to look for rebels. But he says he also heads out into the neighborhoods when he's needed, despite the risks. The condition of the patients in the makeshift clinics is extremely bad. As doctors, we aren't allowed to carry any medicine or even basic first aid supplies. Something as simple as a bandage. I'm not allowed to have it with me. If I'm found with it, I risk imprisonment. In fact, he says he's been jailed three times since the uprising began, along with several other doctors in Duma. I ask him whether the government forces are trying to stop him from helping those they consider the enemy. For sure, because they say to me that I'm treating terrorist gangs. What we really have is a nation that wants freedom. In the town, the walls of buildings damaged by mortar fire are filled with anti-regime graffiti. The Free Syrian Army roamed the streets, ready for more battles. A few days ago, UN monitors spotted government army tanks in violation of the terms of the ceasefire. So much that is visible on Duma's streets suggests there's much tension and yet more trouble in store. For The World, I'm Laura Lynch, Duma. Modern warfare in Syria or anywhere often results in brain injuries. Among American veterans of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, trauma to the brain accounts for more than one-fifth of all combat-related injuries. Those injuries can cause immediate health problems, such as headaches, irritability, and depression. But a new study suggests that the consequences could be far more severe and long-lasting than previously thought. Dr. Anne McKee is a neurologist with the VA Boston and one of the authors of this new study. She's now in our studio. You 
autopsied the brains of four recent veterans who suffered head injuries. They did not die of those injuries. How did they die, and who were these men whose brains you ended up studying? Well, I studied the brains of four uh, young veterans from the recent conflict in in Iraq and Afghanistan, ranging in age from 22 to 45. Uh, Three had been exposed to blast, either one or or, or multiple exposures. Uh, The fourth one was exposed only to concussive injuries, both in civilian life and, and in combat. So how did these men die? They were pretty young. They were young. Uh, None of them died of their head injuries. Uh, They lived, uh, but after uh, they came back, they all were symptomatic. They all had trouble with headaches, irritability, uh, a short fuse. Uh, Many had sleeping uh, problems. Three were diagnosed with PTSD. So that's what happened when they were alive. Once they passed away, you look at their brains, you autopsy them, and find what? Well, we found the buildup of this protein called tau in focal parts or just spots within the part of the brain called the frontal cortex. And that's a part of the brain that's very important for organization, planning, judgment, and our higher intellectual function. And what was surprising was that the the damage that we saw in the brains was exactly what we had seen in young athletes who had been exposed to concussive injuries uh, experienced on the playing field. You mean all coming down to this uh, protein called tau? Tau is a, is a protein that builds up in this disorder. It, it becomes an abnormal protein. We normally have tau in our brain. It, it serves a, a function both to hold up our structure of our nerve cells and also to uh, aid in transport of important nutrients and molecules. But after trauma, it becomes altered and it becomes toxic and builds up in the cell in sort of a toxic form, which will eventually kill the cell and certainly destroys its function while it's there. Okay, so here's the important part, one of the important parts of what you're doing, and that is you are finding the similarities in brain degeneration between athletes who have suffered trauma and veterans who have suffered trauma. Do these changes that you saw affect the daily lives of these vets, and did they affect the daily lives of the athletes whose brains you studied as well? Well, surprisingly, what we see are these discrete spots on the brain, but we are definitely seeing symptomatic uh, uh, problems with both the veterans and the athletes. Uh, Lack of attention and concentration is common. Impulsivity is common. Uh, A tendency for a short fuse or small trivial event makes them sort of have a violent reaction. And then, of course, there's the well-known problems of sleep, sleep disorders, and and, and some suicidality in in both of these uh, groups. One of the troubling things I would think, though, for you would be the fact that when there is a sports injury to an athlete, you might even have the videotape that shows you the point of impact when the trauma happened, along with maybe smaller traumas along the way. With veterans, can you pinpoint exactly how many concussive events there were, how much trauma was suffered, when, over what period of time? Yeah, uh, great question. But no, we can't do that even in the athletes. But the one question that that continued after we'd seen these remarkable similarities was uh, the military individuals always tend to have a a sort of a heterogeneous injury. I mean, they might have a blast injury, but they had a history of playing football, or maybe they had an impact injury from from falling out of a motor vehicle. You know, know, it's always a complicated history. So the real question that we were trying to answer with the model that we devised was, can pure blast injury cause the same kind of damage to the brain that a concussive injury can cause? And that's when we turned to the mice, uh, producing a blast model of uh, injury 
in, in, a, in using experimental mice and, and then looking at the mouse brain experiment uh, neuropathologically and seeing very similar changes created in the mouse brain uh, that we had seen in the human brain. Yeah, with both the athletes and the vets. Right. Uh-huh. So the question is now, what happens later? And is there any way to reduce longer-term effects on the brains of veterans or any treatment that can slow down the brain degeneration that you've documented? Well, certainly this is exactly where our focus is. I mean, we've identified the process. We understand now the basic mechanisms involved. And all of our research is now at pinpointing how to interrupt this this series of degeneration. How can we reverse it? How can we treat it uh, in living veterans? I mean, that's our our aim. Uh, One thing that the study did show was that uh, if we fix the helmet to the neck or if we stabilize the head uh, because we stabilize some of the mouse heads, uh, we, did, we didn't see the injury. So it suggests that some uh, uh, improvement uh, could be made with just changing the equipment uh, that the, these uh, military service people use. Which gets into the practical impact of that. We, the reason we're talking about the degeneration is because it is ongoing? It can be ongoing. And I should say, this is not something that we're going to see in everybody that's ever been exposed to this. There are many, many people that have been exposed to this that will never get this. Really? But we just know that some people are at risk for this. And we, this is something we need to look for in those people. Uh, and, and that's one of the things that uh, is also a challenge for us right now, identifying this lesion in living people. Uh, and so one of our, our studies at the VA that we're uh, embarking on now is looking at cerebral spinal fluid or doing a spinal tap, look looking for the proteins, and specifically the tau protein that develops in this disorder. And we're also looking at some sophisticated imaging techniques, uh, some of which are directed at the tau protein, to also identify this in living veterans. Anne McKee is a neurologist with the VA Boston and Boston University. Her new study of brain injury among veterans appears in the journal Science Translational Medicine. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. Okay, crossword puzzle fans, what is a five-letter word for social rank? Class. 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 All next week, our reporters in China, Egypt, Ukraine, India, and Britain consider how class affects people's lives around the globe. We'll even have some fun along the way with daily online crossword puzzles that will accompany our stories. You can get a jump on the action by texting the word CLASS to 69866. Message and data rates apply. Just text those five letters, C-L-A-S-S, to 69866. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save a Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. Greece is in political paralysis. Today, the government announced new elections for June, even though Greeks just went to the polls last Sunday. That's when Greek voters opted for the political parties that rejected European-imposed austerity measures. But those parties couldn't form a governing coalition, so now a caretaker government has the job of keeping Greece running and solvent. But with Greeks saying no to austerity, that's increasingly difficult to do. It's all prompting renewed talk of Greece exiting the monetary union. The Ross Clark Boyd has this story. If you like neat, tidy stories with predictable endings, the drama of Greece and the euro probably isn't for you. It wasn't supposed to be this way. The euro coins and banknotes officially launched on January 1, 2002. David Marsh wrote a history of the euro. 
he says no one made provisions for any country to leave the Eurozone. This was thought of as being the pinnacle of Europe's integration efforts and was going to be a huge success. So why should you even think of failure? You know, why start thinking about divorce when you're just getting into a glittering marriage? Now that marriage is on the rocks. European leaders continue to insist a Greek exit is not under discussion. But now, with Greece imploding politically and the calls against austerity getting louder, some are thinking the unthinkable. David Lascelles is with the London-based Center for the Study of Financial Innovation. Previously, the euro had an almost religious aura about it. You were not allowed to question it. It was like questioning the existence of God. That is gone now. One thing's for sure. A breakup would put both Greece and the eurozone in uncharted territory. There are huge legal questions. Would Greece also have to leave the European Union? Would treaties have to be renegotiated? And what about the practicalities? How would Greece return to the drachma? Don Holland is co-author of a report on the euro debt crisis. Bank accounts would probably have to be frozen for a short period of time. There'd be massive disruption to the banking system. Probably whatever cash was sitting in the cash point machines would be immediately withdrawn and put it under the mattress. But anything that's held in the banks would be then re-denominated into the new currency immediately. All debts of Greece, including government and private, would be re-denominated into the new currency. Experts say that new currency would be almost immediately devalued by as much as 70%. That means a Greek with 1,000 euros in the bank would have about 300 euros worth of drachma after the conversion. Short-term pain for sure, says Athens-based Greek-American businessman Philip Ammerman. I would predict that if Greece does leave the euro, the, the next two years will be extremely difficult, but equally the rebound will be faster. Ammerman means the devaluation of the currency would make Greek exports cheaper and eventually more competitive. But others say the Greeks would find it hard to borrow money, and that makes it hard to pay public sector workers and pensions. The only way around that would be to print money, and that means inflation. But this isn't just about Greece. Because if Greece leaves the euro, other financially troubled nations, Portugal, Spain, and even Italy, might have to follow. Contagion the C-word. Guy Verhofstadt is the former prime minister of Belgium. The reason why this contagion is possible if there is an exit of Greece is that there is no real firewall around the big economies of Europe. We have a number of fire extinguishers, rescue funds, but the real firewall, like the Americans have also for their dollar, we don't have it. Of course, all of this may be premature. Opinion polls suggest more than 70% of Greeks want to stay in the Eurozone. Some say Greek politicians know that the rest of the Eurozone is not prepared for a Greek exit, and they're using that as leverage to try to get the Eurozone to ease up on the austerity measures. Meanwhile, European leaders keep insisting that Greece stick with the austerity measures in order to get bailout money. Both sides are playing a dangerous game, says Andrew Balls of PIMCO Investments in London. There has been a game of chicken over one or two years and the, the danger is that policymakers just lose control. Uh, I don't think they have a plan B. It's not obvious to me that they have the political ability to, to hold it together. For its part, the IMF says it has to be technically prepared for anything when it comes to a potential Greek exit. U.S. officials, worried about what a Greek exit might do to the wider European and global economies, are sure to be looking on anxiously as well. For The World, this is Clark Boyd. So we stay on the subject of a common currency for today's GeoQuiz. 
we're looking today for a vast area that used a common currency once, about 2,000 years ago, give or take a few. Okay, it wasn't just any area, it was an entire empire, and it didn't exactly invite new members, but conquered and annexed them. This single currency area was headquartered in one of the greatest cities of ancient times. Its seven hills straddled the Tiber River. The emperor there ruled with absolute power, but he did let far-flung provinces have some autonomy. If they had their own currencies, when he took them over, he they could keep using them, he said, along with the empire's single currency. You think maybe Greece would like that option right about now? Well, can you name this capital, which oversaw the ancient equivalent of the Eurozone? We'll be back with the answer a little bit later in the program. take a break, we've got a note from Saudi Arabia. The kingdom has largely avoided the upheavals of the Arab Spring. Saudi authorities did face protests last year by minority Shiites in the east of the country. The protests were contained, and the rest of the country has been relatively quiet. There are exceptions. Mohammed al-Khatani is one of them. He's a professor of economics in Riyadh. In October 2009, he co-founded the Saudi Civil and Political Rights Association. The former U.S. resident has been pushing loudly for more freedom in the Saudi kingdom. He hadn't run into much trouble until now. Katani says that a crackdown is underway now against peaceful activists in Saudi Arabia. He believes that he himself is about to be fired. Credible information were leaked to me from the royal court that a decision is already reached uh, that they're going to sack me due to my human rights and political activities. Katani says he's already been punished by authorities when they banned him from traveling outside the country. He adds that fellow members of the Saudi Civil and Political Rights Association are also being harassed. And he's pretty clear why he thinks this is happening. We started a program more than a year ago to document the cases of political prisoners and the abuses that are happening to them, uh, locking them up with no legal due process, torturing them, the systematic ill-treatment that is happening to them. Katani says he's not seen anything like this since he helped found the association in 2009. They're going after peaceful activists. And this is the first time you see uh, an operation, if you will, by that magnitude, going after anyone who could criticize the government, silencing people, intimidating people. Fire on people, too. So it's uh, it's something new uh, that we never experienced over the course of two and a half years. But despite the crackdown, the Saudi activist says that he will not be deterred. They think they're wrong. will not force us to bow to, uh, to human rights abusers and those who are committing crimes against humanity. We'll continue our work, and in fact, it might give us, you know, full time to carry out our mission in protecting human rights. Professor and activist Mohammed al-Khatani speaking to us from Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. Now, we contacted the Saudi embassy in Washington for a response, but did not get one in time for this broadcast. The world's Ann Lopez is in Saudi Arabia right now. She has been blogging about her experience there. You can find her latest post on a harrowing dash to see the sunset at the Red Sea at theworld.org. I'm Marco Werman. Thank you for listening to Public Radio International. Free podcasts are made possible with support from individuals like you. Please visit PRI.org and make a gift today to invest in better media.
I'm Lisa Mullins. In The Hague, former Bosnian Serb General Rakram Mladic is on trial for war crimes. Back home, some people, including this graffiti artist, still see Mladic in a positive light. We put a lot of graffitis with uh, his face to show that uh, we still think that he's a Serbian hero. Our story coming up on The World. The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save a Life Simulator, an online experience designed to teach life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI and WGBH in Boston. A frail and elderly man shuffled into a courtroom in The Hague today. He wore a business suit, not a military uniform. He entered the room and gave a thumbs-up to those seated on the other side of the bulletproof glass. That man was Ratko Mladic. He is the former Bosnian Serb army commander, and today he went on trial. He's charged with 11 counts of war crimes, including genocide and the massacre of 7,000 Muslim men and boys at Srebrenica in 1995. Prosecutor Dermot Groom's opening statement outlined the case against Mladic. Your Honors, two decades ago this past month, Bosnian Serb leaders commenced an attack on their fellow citizens of Bosnia and Herzegovina. Civilians who were targeted for no other reason than they were of an ethnicity other than Serb. Their land, their lives, their dignity attacked in a coordinated and carefully planned manner. In some locations, this attack arose to the level of genocide. The world watched in disbelief that in neighborhoods and villages within Europe, a genocide appeared to be in progress. That is the prosecutor in the case. Mladic was arrested last year after he had spent 15 years as a fugitive. Many in Serbia had long looked forward to his capture. On the far right, though, quite a few people still consider Mladic a hero, and they continue to pay him tribute on T-shirts, in songs, and in graffiti. Nate Tabak has the story. When Ratko Mladic turned 70 in March, the ultra-nationalist group Nashi celebrated. There was a birthday cake, a toast, and a new graffiti campaign in the city of Novi Sad in northern Serbia. The campaign's called Generalizacija. It's a play on Californicacija, the Serbian name for the American TV series Californication. We put a lot of graffitis with uh, his face and, uh, and, and that uh, word, Generalizacija, uh, to show that after arresting of uh, General Mladic, that uh, we still think that he's a Serbian hero. That's Igor Marinkovic, one of Nashi's leaders. When we support General Marjic, we didn't support uh, like some uh, monstrum man who ordered killings or something like that. We believe that he's innocent and we hope so that he's going to show in Hague Tribunal that he isn't responsible for any crimes in Bosnia. But some in Novi Sad don't agree. Andrea Jerenic saw something troubling when Nashi created an elaborate mural devoted to Mladic on the side of an apartment building. That's not a graffiti art. That's something that calls for hatred, intolerance, uh, for um, killing people, because near that graffiti was another one uh, who, who, which, which says, uh, kill Albanian people. Jerenic is a youth leader in the League of Social Democrats of Vojvodina her party decided to paint over Nashi's mural. He didn't want to uh, allow uh, 
that that kind of organization spread their ideas. Actually, we believe that Ratko Mladic is a sign of something really bad and evil because uh, of his not-heroic deeds. The Social Democrats and Nashi have been engaging in a paint-tug-of-war over the mural for months. The Social Democrats covering it up, Nashi repainting it. After the last cover-up, Nashi burned the provincial flag and delivered it to party headquarters. Yerenich was targeted personally. They threatened me, that they threatened they will kill me, they will rape me, and I don't know, uh, set me on fire, etc. Yerenich says that it just made her more determined. And for the moment, the Social Democrats have prevailed. You don't see a Mladic on the wall, though there are a few nationalist slogans. Nashi seems to be focusing on smaller Mladic tributes, though one on a nearby building was defaced. Someone added an expletive to a graffiti that originally read Ratko Mladic, General. Yarinic says she's frustrated that many people don't seem to care one way or the other. Mihailo Eror is a student at the University of Novi Sad. He doesn't think the Nashi graffiti is a big deal. Those guys have a right to their own opinion, so I don't want to get involved. But, continuing in English, Eror says Mladic is a thing of the past. I think Ratko Mladic is arrested... I think uh, two years ago, one years ago, uh, many people in Serbia are forgot things about Mladic very, very fast. I don't know how, but people forgot. But some in Serbia aren't content to leave it at that. TKV is a pseudonym of a Belgrade street artist. She's Serbia's equivalent of Banksy. Her cheeky stenciled designs are just about everywhere in Belgrade. They often appear on the same walls with ultra-nationalist graffiti. If you look at what, like, nationalists do, it gives them like um, like image that there are a lot of them everywhere. And it's not like that, of course. They're not majority. TKV and others have fought back by appropriating right-wing graffiti. She added a bindi to the forehead of a Vladimir Putin graffiti done by a Nashi supporter. In Belgrade's outskirts, another artist turned a Mladic into a vampire. Well, it's, it's rebellion, you know. It's like saying, like, you cannot, like... For, force us to like take this crap anymore you know it's everywhere you know tkv's frustration comes through in her latest work it's a stencil of peter finch's character from the 1976 film network the caption reads i want you to get mad for the world i'm nate tabak belgrade Take a look at a slideshow of some of what Mladic graffiti looks like at theworld.org. The BBC's Alan Little covered the Balkan Wars. He has this reflection on that time, including the day he met Rakom Mladic. It was June 1992, and you could stand at a Serb gun position on Trebovich Mountain on the south side of Sarajevo and gaze down at the city beneath you, shimmering in the haze of high summer. The streets were laid out like a map at your feet. You could see how easy it was for the gunmen to pick a target. Can you hit the holiday in from here? I asked one machine gunner. The hotel would later house the foreign press corps. The BBC would set up its office there later that summer. It looked dangerously exposed to me. Ha! he laughed. Hit the holiday in. Choose a window. There was an old Yugoslav army barracks nearby at a place called Lukovica. I called there trying to find a way into the besieged city seeking Serb military permission to cross the siege lines. 
Serb paramilitaries wandered around, draped in bullet belts and bandanas, young men pumped up with the prospect of battle, intimidating in their confident, aggressive swagger. There were weapons for sale. One man told me you could buy a hand grenade for a dollar, the same price, I would learn later, that you would pay for a fresh egg inside the besieged hungry city. It was here that day that I met General Mladic in person, one to one for the first time. I shook his hand. He held it firmly and wouldn't let go for what seemed to me to be many minutes. He drew unnervingly close, just a few inches from my face. I dream of a world of peace, he said, in which the only guns will be made of plastic for little boys to play with and reenact the struggles of their ancestors. As he spoke, men serving in an army under his command were bombarding the city beneath us. And that, in some ways, was the least of it. Across northern and eastern Bosnia, where Muslims and Serbs had lived side by side and intermingled for centuries, a different kind of war was taking place. In each municipality, Serb nationalists had set up a so-called emergency committee. In each place, this committee set about the removal of non-Serbs from their homes. In most places, there was no fighting. Mladic's men simply rounded up the non-Serb population, separated the men from the women and children, expelled the latter, and imprisoned the former. Many of those men deemed to be a threat were summarily executed. Many of the women were held as sex slaves. The TV cameras saw little or none of this. Word leaked out slowly to an incredulous world. One evening, months into the war, the Bosnian Serbs deputy president, a suave Shakespeare scholar called Nikola Koljevic, who would later commit suicide, told a British newspaper reporter, privately, You know, we're glad you reporters were so focused on Sarajevo in the spring and summer of 1992, because that enabled us to get on with what we had to do in the north and the east of the country. The term ethnic cleansing was not coined by the foreign media to discredit the Serbs. It is the term they themselves used to describe what they were doing. Srebrenica is the atrocity the world knows about, but Srebrenica did not come out of the blue. The rounding up of civilians and the targeted killings and the forced expulsions and the rapes and the massacres had been going on for three years before Srebrenica. There remains even now a dispute about the nature of the war. There are many who still insist on a kind of moral equivalence, who still insist that, in essence, all sides were equally guilty, for there were, after all, atrocities on all sides. But there was something distinctive about the Serb war effort. At its heart there was a criminal enterprise, the deliberate forced removal of civilian populations aimed at creating an ethnically pure territory. It was organized town by town and village by village even before the war started. It was centrally directed, carefully planned, well-resourced, backed up by overwhelming military superiority, and, crucially, it was state-sponsored. What role was played by the man who shook and held onto my hand that hot summer's day twenty years ago? That is now for the courts to determine. That's the BBC's Alan Little looking back on the Balkan Wars, which he covered.
Mexico is mourning one of its greatest writers today. Carlos Fuentes died yesterday at the age of 83. Today he was honored at a ceremony in Mexico City's National Palace of the Arts. Carlos Fuentes was known throughout the world for his novels, many of them critical of modern-day Mexico. His final novel addressed the brutality of the drug war, as he recently told Canada's CBC. I have a novel which is narrated by a head floating in the sea, cut off by the drug lords. So uh, I have it in my own imagination. There it is. This is a talking head killed by these thugs. That's Carlos Fuentes speaking in a CBC interview late last year. Julio Ortega is professor of Hispanic studies at Brown University. He's the author of a biography of Carlos Fuentes. Now, Professor Ortega, you can't get much more topical than that, especially because there are, as you well know, 49 torsos just discovered earlier this week along a highway near the Mexican city of Monterrey. How was it that Carlos Fuentes could take such a grisly detail as a severed head, making that a main character in his last novel, and turn it into a literary metaphor. How did he pull that off? Well, really it's a literary tradition in a Spanish novel. Violence and the dismembering of the body has been present many times in our literature. It's a, perhaps an excessive intimacy with death in Spanish. But obviously the Fuentes image in his last novel is more shocking because of the uh, reality imitating fiction, no otherwise. But yeah, he has a strong position on current issues, and sometimes these positions take shape in his novels. Well, it's one example, anyway, of how what's happening in Mexico made it into one of Carlos Fuentes' novels. Outside of his fiction writing, though, outside of his novels, how outspoken was he on, for example, the drug violence in Mexico or or on other issues? Yeah, he was outspoken and he was present in forums and colloquiums and in the press, of course. He has been really against the violence and the business. Uh, obviously, we know what's going on in Mexico with the cartels and practically in all Latin America. But he also points to the United States because we here are the big consumers. If uh, the U.S. stops consuming drugs, the business will end, probably in a great part. So he was not an expert. He never claimed to be, but he was trying to discuss uh, it's a very complex issue, and uh, nobody has a practical solution for this. You presumably knew Carlos Fuentes well since you wrote his biography. I wonder if you can just tell us when you met and personally how your friendship evolved. We met in the summer of 69 in Mexico City, and we managed to keep our friendship based on literature and common interests. And, and in 1996, he became a visiting professor at Brown. He was here every spring. And we organized a lot of conference, colloquium, especially dedicated to new writers. He was very much interested in the new voices. What was he like to uh, to hang out with? Well, uh, it was an intense experience because he, was, he had a, an incredible energy. And everybody was at the end of a session tired but him and uh, ready to keep going. <laughs> and really he was amazing because he was probably one of the last public intellectuals in Spanish war, 
one who was responsible of uh, public opinion and taking stands and criticizing dictatorships, interventions, and, and uh, always alert. And the main thing is that he was really one of the most free writers because he was free from the state influence or patronage and also free from the market. He never wrote for the market. So he's a very strange, unique case of total freedom. Julio Ortega, friend and biographer of the late Carlos Fuentes. Professor Ortega's most recent book is Dialogues in Latin American Literature. Nice to speak with you. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from WGBH, producer of Antiques Roadshow, with family heirlooms, yard sale bargains, and long-lost items salvaged from attics and basements. Experts reveal the fascinating stories behind these hidden treasures, Mondays at 8, 7 Central, on PBS. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. For our GeoQuiz today, we're looking for the capital of a very large region that used to have its own single currency. That was way, way, way before the euro. The answer is Rome, the heart of the Roman Empire, which had a single currency for 400 years. Now, the eurozone has only been around for about 13 years, and it's already got enormous problems. Gilles Bronsborg is an economist, a former banker, and a historian. He is now a research associate with New York University's Institute for the Study of the Ancient World. So, Gilles, the Roman Empire was huge, from Scotland to roughly the Nile around Sudan and Egypt. What did the Roman Empire get right? Basically, the Roman authorities very early understood they would not be able to manage such a large empire at a time where it could take up to six months on horseback to cross it, they would not be able to manage it if they had a centralized form of government. So essentially, they decided to leave as much as possible to the local authorities. Anything that could be locally handled would be locally handled. Meaning what was coming from Rome was gold, silver, and bronze. Those were the denominations that had been circulated around the empire, correct? Yes, I mean, in the ancient world, there was no paper money, there was no credit card, no electronic money. So people needed something with real value as a form of money. So you had an imperial currency, which was made of these three metals with different denomination. Essentially, Rome, when it expanded into a world empire, met very sophisticated cities, nations, kingdoms that pre-existed the Roman Empire. And most of the time, the decision was to let these local nations to handle their own local currency. So they coexisted with a single currency that was coming from the Roman Empire, from Rome. That's correct. What's the point of having local currencies along with the, with the major currencies of gold and silver and bronze? If you want to compare European Union and, and Rome, if the euro had been devised not as a monopolistic currency, right now in Europe, the euro is the only currency which is legal tender. In the Roman Empire, the local currencies were local legal tenders, so they could be locally accepted. So if you look at the consequences of, let's say, Greece joining the euro and suddenly having very low interest rate and an incentive to borrow way over what it should have been borrowing, with a local currency, this would not have happened because the interest rate would have stayed higher. And as such, with higher interest rates, the incentive to borrow and create money and get into a bubble situation would not have existed. Do you think then that there are aspects of the way the Roman Empire ran its single currency that may 
have made or may make sense for the euro and the eurozone right now? I just hope it's not too late. As you know, the decision to implement a monetary union was taken in the early 1990s. At that time, I think we had the possibility, and I know it was discussed, to have the EQ, ECU, which was used to be the European Currency Unit, have the EQ as a common currency, but not as a single currency. So we could have let local currencies live alongside the EQ, where the EQ would have been sort of, you know, reserved for the large transaction, the large cross-border transaction, and the local currency would have been locally used. 20 years later, I'm not sure it's that easy to implement again. The Roman Empire, it's interesting you find that there's still lessons that could be learned from them. Most of the topics we talk about today, ancient Greeks and Romans had the same issues. In some way, ancient worlds are much more modern than we think, and maybe we are not as modern as we think. <laughs> Gilles Bronsberg <laughs> is a research associate with NYU's Institute for the Study of the Ancient World. He also does historical research for the American Numismatic Society. Nice to talk with you. Thank you. And finally today, a rapper from Iran is facing death threats because of his work. Shaheen Najafi is known to push the limits with his music. He's 31 years old. He's been called the Eminem of Iran. His criticism of life there doesn't sit too well with Iranian authorities, and that is why Najafi lives in Germany. The death threats came this week after the rapper uploaded his latest song to YouTube. An Islamic website posted a $100,000 bounty on his head. Reporter Nina Porzuki has more. Even before you hear Shaheen Najafi's latest song, the album cover is eye-catching. It's a photo of a woman's breast doubling as the dome of a holy shrine, a rainbow flag flying from the top. But believe it or not, it's not the racy image that riled up Najafi's critics, but the lyrics of that one song. The song is Nari, short for Ali al-Hadi al-Nari, a Shiite holy figure also known as the 10th Shia Imam Nari. The lyrics are a fictionalized conversation between the rapper and the deceased imam. Among the topics of conversation, sexual violence, the trend of cosmetic surgery in Iran, and the cheap Chinese goods flooding Iranian markets. I thought there would be some ramifications, Najafi told an interviewer in Germany, but I didn't think I would upset the regime that much. The fact that uh, an actual death threat came up uh, was a big surprise to him. Uh, I mean, he's used to being targeted for you know criticism, but not in that sense. And uh, he's, 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 he's very scared. Ol Reitoff is the program director of Free Muse, a nonprofit that advocates for freedom of expression for musicians. He's been in touch with Najafi, who's under police protection in Germany. The rapper is surprised, says Reitoff, because although the song is highly critical of Iranian society, it doesn't directly criticize Islam. But in Iran, everything is mixed up, uh, like I think in many other countries, like the U.S. election, <laughs> what is religion and when, what is politics. So it's just a little bit more serious here because uh, you, you do have uh, crazy people out there who believe that uh, they have to do anything in the, in the name of religion. Rydoff says fatwas and death threats directed at artists are more common in Iran than we realize. In Ajafi's case, he ran afoul of an ayatollah's existing fatwa against insulting the 10th imam, which is what critics said Najafi did, just by pretending to talk to the Shiite holy figure. Some artists self-censor, but not all, says Rydoff. 
there are others who, who simply say, well, you know, I've got so many now, so I, I don't really care. Uh, but, but it has uh, made an effect to many artists that they start silencing themselves, even artists who have stopped performing uh, because of, of, of threats like this. I, I think it's much more uh, than we actually know. I think we, we know the tip of the iceberg. Najafi says he won't be silenced, but he has canceled all of his concerts. Radoff says he can always release new songs on YouTube, but... The problem is an artist always, especially our rappers, need to have a direct contact with their audience. That's where they get their feedback from. For now, Shaheen Najafi waits in a safe house in Germany, gathering material, perhaps, for his next album. For the world... I'm Nina Porzuki. See what made rapper Shaheen Najafi the object of fatwa? We've got a link to his video and some of his translated lyrics at theworld.org. That's it for us today. From the Nan and Bill Harris studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Lisa Mullins. Thanks for listening. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, Public Radio International, and WGBH Boston. Supported in part by the Carnegie Corporation, the Henry Luce Foundation for Increased Understanding of East and Southeast Asia, and the PRI Program Fund, whose donors support the critical work of the nonprofit sector. Contributors include the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. Online at macfound.org. PRI Public Radio International.